it's a relief to see how excited people are for political reform. And again, not because they want their side to win, although there's plenty of that, but there are people who generally believe the system can be made to work better. And, you know, a few years ago, I went to Nashville for a conference put on by a group called Represent Us. And there were thousands of people who came to the city to talk about democracy reform, seeing them in and out of speaker events or walking up and down the corridors to stop at tables and see what different groups were doing. It was so great just to see people that excited about it. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today is David Myers. David was, for more than four years, the publisher and executive editor of The Fulcrum, which has been something of a trade publication for groups in the democracy reform area and for others interested in what they're doing. Before that, most of his career was at Roll Call, which covers Capitol Hill in D.C. David recently left The Fulcrum and continues to work independently on democracy reform. If you're interested in the coverage of democracy reform, and what it's like to start a new publishing enterprise in that space, you'll be interested in David's story. So, after a quick word from my sponsor, my interview with David Myers, formerly of The Fulcrum. This episode is brought to you by Graphicacy. Graphicacy is an analytic design firm that can help you advance the mission of your organization using your own real data and information. They are 21st century visual communicators who create interactive graphics, motion graphics, and data visualizations. You can find Graphicacy at graphicacy.com. That is G-R-A-P-H-I-C-A-C-Y.com. With Graphicacy's help, you can visualize a better world. David, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Sure. My name is David Myers. I have been a journalist in Washington, D.C. for more than 25 years now. I spent the first two decades of my career with a company called CQ Roll Call, which focuses on covering Congress, looking at both politics and policy, as well as the regulatory process, really the whole way that legislation is made from the way members of Congress are elected to how they serve on Capitol Hill to what goes into a bill. But I left there four years ago to found a publication called The Fulcrum, which is devoted to the democracy reform movement. It was a project of a nonprofit called Issue One, and our mission was to broaden the scope of people who are aware of efforts to make democracy better. So we looked at things like voting rights and redistricting and campaign finance laws and ethics and efforts to improve bipartisanship in Congress and at the state and local levels. I was the executive editor and publisher there for the first four years, and I recently left to work on some new projects in both the democracy reform movement and elsewhere. Well, I've intersected a bit with that because I've been trying to cover in this podcast a lot of things about democracy reform and related areas for maybe five and a half years. And I've had on the show 
a couple people that I think you know, David Hawkins and Nick Penniman, and learned a little bit about the fulcrum from different angles from that and also read in it and had a lot of guests on my podcast who also have written or had blurbs on the fulcrum. But I still, I have a lot to learn about what you did there and about other parts of your career. I'm always interested in like how people got on this path, a long career in, in journalism. What kind of family did you have growing up? Where were you? I grew up in northern New Jersey, me and my sister with my parents, although when I was about 11 years old, my parents got divorced. They worked out what I think was a fairly new custody system at the time it was called joint shared custody, where I spent half time with my mother and half time with my father. It worked out really well where I got to uh, experience, I think, as much of a traditional family as you could in that kind of situation in that I had both of my parents in my life and they both had remarried. And so it was a growing family, upper middle class, northern New Jersey neighborhood, not far from New York City. I was blessed that my parents were able to afford to send me to college. Fairly unusual childhood, I would say. One that allowed me the opportunities to explore different areas and then going to college and broadening my horizons to figure out what it is I want to do with my life. Was journalism in the family? Was an interest in politics in the family? You know, it's funny. Neither of them really were. When I was in high school, I took a journalism class and got involved in the high school newspaper, which is really more of a newsletter at the time, a monthly newsletter. And I really enjoyed it. When I went to college, I knew I wanted to go into journalism. So I worked for the Tufts Daily at Tufts University. Along the same lines, I wanted to find as many ways to write as possible just to become a better writer. So I studied English and political science because I found those things interesting, but because they offered me opportunities to write. And I really fell into a track of studying American politics at the same time I was progressing through my collegiate journalism career. And when I was graduating, I wasn't necessarily looking for a job in political journalism. I was looking for a job. And I got lucky that one of the first offers I got was in Washington, D.C. with Roll Call. Yeah, it's a pretty fateful first job for you. Yes, um, exactly. What is your relationship with writing? Mine is a lot of memories of procrastination and then being up really late trying to get papers done and sometimes having some satisfaction in that and when words worked well together and paragraphs made sense one after another. I think that process of thinking is painful for me. What's your relationship with that? From an academic perspective, for me, it was very much the same. I enjoyed the idea of putting together the concept of a paper, an essay, but it felt more like a chore to actually put it together. And I would procrastinate, like you said. Now, when I was writing for the Daily or for an internship, it, it flowed much easier. There was a simpleness to the structure where I knew how to write my lead and then how to support it and build an article. So that flowed very easily to me. The funny thing about it is after I graduated and started working, I wrote very little. Uh, I always thought I was going to become a reporter and I ended up on a copy editor track and then into newsroom management and would do a little bit of writing here and there, but I never held a beat. I didn't have a regular writing routine until really the last two years when I started writing on a near daily basis for the Fulcrum. And it was fun to get back into doing that. It had been a very long time since I'd written that much and I enjoyed it. 
Tell me a little bit about that path within Roll Call. I've seen the steps on your resume, at least on LinkedIn. Tell me about how you progressed through that and what you were thinking and how it kept being a place that you wanted to continue at and so on. Sure. So my first job was as editorial assistant, which is a mix of assistant to the copy editor and assistant to the executive editor, who at the time was Morton Kondracki, who was a well-known journalist at the time and was on the McLaughlin Group. So I spent a lot of time helping him with his research for TV and his columns and then learning what it meant to be a copy editor, which was not just proofing, but also making sure the paper came together well. This is 1996. So we had a website, but there wasn't much to it. It was a place that the print went to go live online. Say a word or two about Kondracki, because I remember watching him and he was kind of one of those more famous of the reporters around. What was he like? Mort was great. I loved working for him. You always think back on what you learn from people. And uh, Mort is the person who taught me never to just take no for an answer. Uh, I think I made that mistake once. He asked me for something. I tried to get it. And I came back and said, the person said no. And his response was, don't take no for an answer, at least not the first time. And from that, it really pushed me to understand that with a little more effort or sometimes a lot more effort, you can probably get what you need, but you got to be willing to put in that extra effort. Being able to help him with both his writing and his TV appearances broadened my exposure to the different types of journalism or media that were out there. I wouldn't say that being on McLaughlin Group is is a method of reporting by any sense, but of punditry. And it gave me a great understanding of what goes into television production versus writing a news story or writing his column and putting together a print edition. So what would you tell someone who was working for you, who you didn't want to take no for an answer? What is the strategy after that first no? How do you find your way to some kind of yes? You always have to understand that it may not always be possible to get the yes. I mean, don't take no for the the answer the first time, but after the fifth or sixth time, there might not actually be something there you can get. So when I've had that situation with my employees, I'll tell them that story about working for more and, and getting that extra push and explain to people what they can get out of by working a little bit harder or by asking that extra question or going to the next person, the next source, whatever it might be. And using it more as a carrot than as a stick and explaining the benefits of how they can be more productive, be better at their jobs by working that much harder. I never want to make it a thing. You didn't ask the, the right question and you're now you're being punished or something like that. My management style was always much more about leading people to being better rather than pushing them or forcing them to do things differently. So continue with your story about roll sure. call. Right. So I was editorial assistant and um, in the next year, I guess it was the spring of 1997, we were launching a magazine called Capital Style. Uh, and I went to the publisher, Laura Bataglia, and asked if I could get a job in the magazine. And she explained, well, no, but there's going to be a lot of restructuring because of that. And the woman who was a copy editor at the time was being promoted into another position. I was offered the role of copy editor. A little more money and a promotion. Well, it's going to say no. So I became the copy editor. So now I ran the two-person copy desk and um, got to read every word that went in the paper before it was printed and got to work with all the reporters and all the editors and the production staff and learn even more about the process of putting together a newspaper. From there, 
we started to grow the copy desk a little bit. And I moved into another role called news editor where I oversaw the copy desk, but I wasn't the copy editor anymore. And as we started to grow, we were thinking about digital. We were thinking about more issues. It was always strategizing about what was going to come next. But before we even got to a real big change with Roll Call itself, we decided to test the waters on digital. In 2001, we launched our first digital-only publication called Roll Call Daily. It was four people, two editors, two reporters, and it was our, our test to see whether there was an appetite for a daily digital publication about Congress. And turned out there was because the internet was growing and people wanted more news. So after about a year and a half of building that, we decided that Roll Call was going to become much more of a digital presence. So we shut down Roll Call Daily and moved that operation into Roll Call and actually made a real website that had a content management system. It could handle breaking news, all those things we could never do with the website before. And with that, I became one of the two managing editors and took on the task of growing the copy editing and production process to be able to manage a daily publication rather than a twice weekly newspaper. And then from that, we added a third and a fourth day of print editions. So we really became a daily print and digital operation within a few years. I guess we're talking about 2003, 2004, and I had grown what had been a two-person copy desk into a dozen copy editors, production editors, assistants who were working on print and digital and reporting, as well as doing the copy editing tasks. So I did that until 2009 when Roll Call merged with Congressional Quarterly. At the time, we were owned by The Economist out of London. The Economist bought CQ and began the process of merging the publications. And I became the guinea pig sent to cross-pollinate a roll call person into the CQ newsroom. There had been a couple different research teams that worked on different things like fact-checking members of Congress and candidates and collecting biographical data on members of Congress and state legislators and more, fact-checking for CQ Weekly magazine. Those were three different teams that were merged into one, and I was asked or told to become the managing editor for that department called the Member Information and Research. And in that team, we put together a biennial biographical director of Congress. So we wrote 2,000 word profiles of every member of Congress that went in both the website as well as a book that we printed. We managed the databases for both grassroots and lobbying tools that CQ sold to different clients. And we continued to support the weekly magazine. I remember Capital Advantage getting bought into that same group, which did advocacy software and had a publication of all the members of Congress, too. Is that's part of what you're talking about there? That's exactly right. Capital Advantage formed one of the research teams that made up my new research team. So we handled the Congress Air Fingertips directories that Capital Advantage had been printing, as well as the tools that you mentioned. It was called, one was called CapWiz, which is a plug-in for websites that wanted to get grassroots followers engaged in campaigns. And another one, a lobbyist tool for managing contacts with members of Congress and their staffs. Yeah. Yeah. And then they were, that was, I remember was millions of dollars buying that and kind of a, an attempt to move into the more software as a service world to some degree. This path that you have with Roll Call and CQ Roll Call, the outside world of journalism and 
newspapers is changing radically over this time. How much is the path that you were on the same as what's going on more broadly? And how much is it different than sort of kind of big trends in the press? Well, as managing editor of Roll Call, it very much paralleled what was going on because we're talking about the growth of digital advertising and e-newsletters and growing website traffic. When I moved over to the CQ side and was running the research team, it was its own world where we were providing mostly data products to CQ clients who needed to keep up with members of Congress. So I was watching from across the newsroom what was happening with the news side of things. That's when the powers that be decided to take roll call out from behind the paywall that had been behind from the time I had joined there. So there was a shift in audience and advertising goals that was going on that I came back into later in my career. But a lot of that was happening while I was working on other projects. How is the competitive landscape affecting you? Like the Hill, the even the Bloombergs of the world covering some of the same stuff? Right. The Hill was around when I moved to D.C. in 1996. It was not what it is now, not that anybody is. The Hill was was a good competitor in that they pushed us to make sure we continued to do things well with roll call because we didn't want to be overtaken. Then I don't remember exactly what year it was, maybe around 2007, 2008, Politico came to be and had a major influx of talent that came with it and marketing dollars and just took off. The Hills started to follow a lot of what Politico was doing and the two of them made a much bigger play for a general national audience while Roll Call intentionally stayed more focused on Capitol Hill and the Washington, D.C. audience and created different strategies in both audience development as well as advertising sales. Mm -hmm. So were you enjoying this this career? Were you happy at that institution? Was it a good place for you? So it was great for me because I was oh, every few years I got an opportunity to try something different. My time as managing a roll call was probably my longest stretch in any one role. But even that, it, it was never routine because we were always thinking about growth and thinking about how to do new things and running new projects. With the, the member information research spot that I was in, I was only in that role for about three years because the first year or so I spent rebuilding the team after the merger and there were layoffs and trying to figure out how to do the work we needed to do. And I found the work very important, but it wasn't what I really wanted to be doing. So luckily, at about that same time, they offered me an opportunity to try something different. They needed somebody to run a product for a year while they did some more restructuring. So I made my first foray into product development, product management, and ran a service that we had that provided tracking tools for legislation and regulations at the state level. It's called State Track. Companies would sign up because they needed to know what was happening in every state, in whatever industry they were in, insurance, healthcare, environment, whatever it is. And we would provide the tools and the data so they could get alerted whenever there was a movement on a bill or a regulation that applied to them. So in that role, I was managing account representatives. I was working with sales. I was working with developers. And I was working with clients. It was the first time I really spent a lot of time on the client side. Uh, helping bring in new clients as well as maintain relationships and provide for existing clients. Like I said, that was only a year. After that, I was back to the newsroom doing some editorial product development and then re-inheriting my old research team as well as another research team that handled 
all of the legislative activities. So people who were updating floor actions and committee schedules and document collection and pulling all that together. So I ran that for a couple of years, I guess it was. I don't remember exactly how long. And then I moved to my last job at CQ Roll Call, 20 years in there. I got my last job back on the business side. I was asked to help strategize revenue for Roll Call or for advertising. So it included CQ a little bit as well, but mostly for Roll Call. But bringing together the advertising side with the editorial side and trying to find the areas where we could provide journalism that met advertising demands and create advertising opportunities that matched up with what the newsroom was doing. So that could be creating special publications, running events, creating new advertising opportunities within both print and digital, and really just looking for ways to grow revenue within our advertising products. Was the business thriving at that time? Uh, it was, how do I put this? The business was doing well. I think we always wanted it to be more. I mean, we were still not close to the hill in Politico in traffic, but we were profitable and we were pulling in good numbers, both in terms of traffic as well as advertising. We felt good about it, but we always wanted to be able to do more. What's the circumstances that led to you leaving to help start Fulcrum? So about two and a half, three years into that last role, CQ Roll Call was sold by The Economist to Fiscal Note. So Roll Call at that point before that sale was a small piece of the revenue puzzle. Uh, CQ and the advocacy tools were a much bigger part of the pie. And then once we were pulled into Fiscal Note, it became an even smaller piece. And I didn't see a lot of opportunity for myself to stay in that role. And around that time, I was introduced to Nick Penniman by his colleague, Meredith McGee, who I had known for years from her work in DC. And Nick and I started talking about his ideas for some sort of digital publication covering the democracy reform movement. So the, the timing worked out perfectly for me that he was looking for somebody, David Hawkins, who you mentioned, who had been a colleague of mine at CQ Roll Call for a number of years, was also interested. So we continued those conversations and Nick decided he was ready to pull the trigger and brought both David and me in to create what became the Fulcrum. Were you friends with uh, David Hawkins? David and I had been colleagues who worked together for a long time. We got along very well. well. We were never social friends. Our offices had been next door to each other for a number of years. He was editor of CQ Weekly magazine when my team was providing the fact-checking research. So we got to know each other very well. So it was an easy partnership moving forward. What was the separation of roles between the two of you? So David ran the day-to-day -day reporting and editing. Uh, he oversaw our team of three reporters. He made the assignments. Uh, I was part of all those discussions, but I wanted David as a, a longer tenured reporter and editor who would, like I said, I, I hadn't been a reporter in a very long time. So David was much more immersed in that world. So it made sense for him to take ownership of that part of it. I handled a lot of the, the administrative duties. I worked on this website development with our vendors. I worked on audience development, fundraising, planning our webinar series, building relationships with possible partners. We, did, we created distribution partnerships. So it was more of the publisher side of things, although I was often involved in day-to-day -day editing as well because David and I both agreed that we wanted to 
make our content as strong as possible. So having two experienced editors is always better than having one. So this is kind of a real exercise in entrepreneurship, even though it's a nonprofit that you're building, right? It's creating something out of whole cloth, more or less. And, and uh, tell me about like the efforts to get that off the ground and what it took. Oh, what did it take? So Nick had created a, a draft prospectus of what this product would be. It had a different name at the time, a, a working title. And then when David and I came in, we started refining that in our own vision of the, the issues we thought we would cover, our approach to that, and what the content would look like. We wanted it to be news-based, so we didn't want it to be seen as liberal or conservative or anti-Trump. We wanted to be pro-democracy. And, and the idea we came up with is we believe democracy can be better and we will introduce you, the reader, to different ways that that can happen without endorsing any particular solutions. We felt it wasn't our place to say, this is how to solve it. That's not what our experience was. Our experience was in researching and explaining different opportunities. And that was one of David's big things. His last few years of roll call was explaining how government works. In this case, we're going to explain how government could work better. Alongside that, we wanted it to be the voice of the community as well. So we were very aggressive in recruiting op-ed writers who could argue for those particular solutions that we would discuss, but we wanted them to make the case for it, not us to make the case for it. So we spent a lot of time building those relationships. Then it was a matter of figuring out what roles we needed for reporters, what we needed from an audience, from marketing, building the website, working with different vendors for that. And fundraising. Luckily, Nick had done a lot of that work in advance to get the core funding in place before I even came on board. But then we had to keep doing that as well because we wanted to, to be more than a year's project. We wanted it to be sustainable. So a lot of time was spent talking to foundations and individuals who might be able to provide support. Uh, that was all just to get us off the ground to get to this point where we could actually start putting reporters to work and getting some stories out there. Is that a something that is sustainable in a for-profit model? I'm curious, who is the audience? Do they want to pay for something like that? Unfortunately, the wider populace is not notoriously always focused on, on this kind of information and these kind of players. How did you think about getting it to sustainability and, and what model needed to be there? Well, to be totally transparent, um, the model we came up with clearly didn't work because after two years with issue one under Nick's leadership, we had to move somewhere else because we didn't have enough funding to keep going the way we were. So two years in, we, we moved it under the Bridge Alliance, which has been one of our funders on a reduced budget. And the Bridge Alliance has continued to publish the Balkrum, but it, it's a different publication than it was four years ago. So our approach to audiences and sustainability was to think in concentric circles. First, we were thinking we wanted to write for and about the 100, 150 organizations that were working on the issues that we covered, being a trade publication for them. And then there's a circle beyond that where you write for members of Congress and staff and state legislators, people who can actually make the changes that we're writing about. And then the third larger circle is a general audience of people who care about 
how government works and whether and how it can work better. And we wrestled every week with how do we balance that approach? And I don't think we ever got it exactly right. Clearly we didn't because we couldn't raise enough money to keep going the way we were. But I, I think we had success at the same time because the people in that industry space, that inner circle, knew the fulcrum, wanted to be in the fulcrum, wanted their stories, their issues written about in the fulcrum. So at that core basis, I think we were successful. The sustainability issue is, is the big one that you brought up. And there is absolutely a model for nonprofit journalism. The challenge that I found is that it works best for local and regional nonprofits, not a broad-based national publication. There are still some that work, but most of the funding resources go to filling those news deserts, places where for-profit media has skipped town, shut down their business, however you want to describe it, and nonprofits are coming in and standing up their own publications to fill that gap. I think it's in many ways easier to raise money for something like that because you have local foundations and businesses that want to be supportive of their communities. And you have larger foundations that are really focused on local journalism, things like the Knight Foundation. It's harder to find the funding for what we were doing because we fell between a lot of buckets. There's media buckets that were really focused, like I said, on local journalism. And there's democracy buckets that were focused on implementation and lobbying and advocacy for solutions. And we tried to straddle that with some success, but not enough success. Was there ever interest from a big newspaper to pull this in? So we never had that conversation, but we did strike a partnership with the Tribune News Service. They were very interested in the content we were producing and agreed to distribute our content through their network. So every day our content, whether it was news stories or opinion stories, were in the Portland Press Herald or the Miami Herald or the New York Daily News or local papers all over the country. It would be six dozen or so places sometimes that were picking up stories and republishing them. So our reach ended up being a lot bigger than it was just through our site and our newsletter. Didn't necessarily lead to more funding, but it accomplished one of our goals of getting our content in front of more people. In the concentric circles that you mentioned, in the inner ones, were you read widely? Within the, that first inner circle of the of the practitioners of democracy reform, absolutely. You know, we go to conferences or get on calls with people, and, and people knew what the fulcrum was. So we didn't have to explain it. So that core group absolutely knew it. Um, they were on our newsletter list. They followed us on social media. They'd respond to our calls. That trade publication model was working. It was a struggle to get beyond that. Did you find yourself aligned politically over time with any particular part of American politics, ideologically or I don't know, So otherwise? I would not say we were aligned with a party. We were aligned with principles that tended to be adopted more by one party. So our feeling is that democracy reform isn't a partisan issue. Making it possible for people to vote, for creating fair districts, for enforcing campaign finance laws or creating new controls on, on spending and campaigns shouldn't be a Democratic or Republican issue. The reality is most of those causes are taken up 
by the American left. Not exclusively. There are plenty of Republicans who believe in those things as well. And gerrymandering is practiced by Democrats just as much as it is by Republicans. But it certainly led to a perception at times that we were a left-leaning publication, even though that was never our intent or desire. Any relationship to the never-Trump world? Not really. And we talked, we had conversations with people who were connected to things like the bulwark and things like that. And we certainly got op-ed pitches from people who wanted to stop Trump from running again by changing the rules, you know, things like the Electoral Count Act more recently, but even going back to media disinformation and things like that. The Trump presidency was a big driver of content for us, but it wasn't a, because Trump was a Republican. It was because people felt Trump was bad for democracy. In the things that you covered, it was a four years you were there, I, I think? Yes. What do you think were the most important things that were happening in the pro-democracy world in the U.S.? Well, so, I mean, setting aside things like, in general, the Trump presidency or January 6th, which is obviously the biggest story, but we were never going to compete with the big publications on coverage of that. So I think about things that have happened in the reform movement during the time we were I was at Fulcrum. I still write on occasion, but as the Fulcrum has been publishing, and there are definitely some reforms where we've seen a lot of activity. Ranked choice voting continues to grow across the country now. There's multiple states that have enacted it for statewide elections and more possibly, and large cities are using it. We're seeing changes with open primaries where some states are allowing independent voters participate in the primary system. But I mean, the biggest thing probably has been the fight over voting rights between the COVID pandemic and the 2020 election. States have been going back and forth on changing rules about voting and trying to keep up with the pace on that was exhausting, even when we were fully staffed. But then we were a smaller team just trying to keep track of how every state was trying to change the laws, whether to make it easier to vote or tighten the rules because of election security concerns for the past couple of years. That has probably been the biggest story. As you were tracking that sort of stuff, did you find yourself optimistic about our future or pessimistic? By nature, I'm an optimist. So I see where there are a lot of good things happening, and I hope that that continues and expands because people in other states will see it. And a lot of this is a state-level thing. There's only so much I think that will ever happen at the federal level. At the same time, as I say, I'm an optimist. We were also, as an organization, rightly pessimistic about some things. Like The very first article that David Hawkins wrote was for the Fulcrum was about what was called H.R. 1, the For the People Act, which is a federal bill, a congressional bill to mandate a slew of changes to how states run elections. Things like automatic voter registration and nonpartisan redistricting commissions and early voting. It just goes on and on. The dozens of provisions that were in that bill. And the reality was that bill was never going to pass. It would get through the House because the majority can force bills with the House but it was never going to get through the Senate without the Democrats having 60 votes and that wasn't going to happen. So we were honest about it right up front. We said, this is a messaging bill. This is a bill that shows how Democrats want to change elections, but 
don't be fooled. This isn't going to happen. And that bill went through three years of fights and changes. And of course, it never happened. Did you see the thing about Mansion and Cinema exchanging a high five about having kept the filibuster and having stopped this legislation that was just the other right. day? Yeah. 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 I mean, so we could talk about whether the filibuster is good or bad for democracy, but just on the voting rights issue, I mean, that bill was never going to be the solution. It's really going to be a lot of state by state activity. And it's gone both ways where a lot of Republican led states have tightened the rules. A lot of Democratic led states have loosened the rules. But there have been some examples, Vermont and especially Kentucky, where we've seen Democrats and Republicans work together and find compromises where they take steps to make elections more secure, but also make it easier for people to vote. And it would be great if we could see more of that. Do you think there were any pieces of that big legislation that might have gone through on bipartisan basis or the parts were basically just like the whole? I'd have to go back and look through bit by bit, but I'm sure there are. And that was one of the things that I always wondered about is what would happen if they broke it up into its independent components and started doing one piece at a time. And I think there are parts of it that probably could have gotten through maybe some things about early voting. I guess the Electoral Count Act is the one exception, right, that got broken. Right, right. That's the one piece that uh, became a standalone bill and made it through, which was incredibly important. Did you leave because they couldn't afford you anymore? Yes, it became a financial issue. There's only so much funding to available to the fulcrum, and it's less than it was. So uh, unfortunately, I'm no longer executive editor, although I'm trying to still write for them every once in a while. Who's left? It's still run by the Bridge Alliance. David Nevins, uh, who's the founder, and David Lynn Molinow, who's the president. They are the co-publishers. And they've got a support team, both internal and external, that provides enough time to recruit op-ed writers and collect some content and keep it going. Hawking's also gone? Yes. Yeah. Tell me what you've done since. I'm working on a six-month project for another group in the field, but I'm not sure that it's they want it public right now. But you're doing independent work in yes. a similar so, area? Yes. I'm continuing to, to provide consulting and freelance services to a number of groups in the democracy reform movement, uh, writing, research, editing, and helping create content for groups to advance their work to fix the political system. Enough to, to look like it can be a f- continuation of your employment world? or I think so. That's the idea. And, th- and that's what I've been doing actually with the Fulcrum for the last year and a half or so as uh, we moved to the Bridge Alliance and I became part-time. I was also trying to build out this idea of a freelance consultant to the, the movement. So I think it can be done and I'm optimistic I can make this happen and keep my hands involved in a number of different ways. You must have, after all these years in this kind of flagship political publications, have come to some theories about how well we cover politics in this country, in the media. How are we doing, in your view, broadly? Uh, I think there are things that the media does really well, and a lot of that is explainers, explains to people why is a vote on the debt ceiling important and how is it different than spending. 
what does it mean for the Electoral Count Act to pass? There are things like that that help. Unfortunately, I think too much of it gets drowned out by what we could call horse race journalism. Who's going to be first to the story and too many winners and losers type stories. And I'm not talking about elections, who wins and loses elections, which is hugely important, but who wins the policy fight rather than what is the policy fight all about? I would love to see more focus on the impacts of bills and decisions and votes and less on the infighting. Now, that comes from somebody who spent his entire career on the inside of that, creating insider's journalism about Congress, which I think is incredibly important to the Washington, D.C. community. But I feel like we get trapped in that view too much and don't necessarily think about how the rest of the country understands what's happening. You talked about there being like 100, 150 organizations in the space that you're a trade journalist publication for. What's your sense of how well that is organized? Like, is it are there too many of these groups? Are, should there be consolidation? Should there be more? I mean, you looked at that pretty carefully. Yeah. I, I have always been leery of not necessarily the number, but the overlap. I get emails often from people who say, we're starting a new group. We're going to end partisanship by bringing people together to talk about issues. And I'd say, well, that's really interesting. It's great. But there's six other groups that I can point to that are doing that kind of work. And if you add all what they're doing, it's not making much impact, unfortunately, because of the huge tides but, of, yeah. But the thing that I th think has changed in the last few years is there's a lot more collaboration and not necessarily things people see publicly, but there are a lot of efforts being made to bring these groups together. So the Bridge Alliance is one of them. The Bridge Alliance is an umbrella group basically for about 90 or 100 of those groups and brings them together for sharing resources and convening to talk about issues. But there's also a number of groups that have organized regular conversations among leaders of these groups. So it's not everybody off on their own trying to do the same thing, but really trying to find ways to work together. And this is especially the case in the anti-polarization segment of this community, groups that are trying to get people on the left and the right to talk together, to work together, to find common ground on issues. I'm lucky enough that I get to sit in on a lot of these conversations as first as a representative for the Fulcrum, now as an interested party, and really see how people are trying to collaborate. And there'll be a lot coming out this year. And again, not publicly, but just organizationally where these groups are going to share ideas and goals and try and pull together in the same direction. The challenge, of course, for all these groups is fundraising and making sure that everybody's got enough money to do what they want to do. And that's where I wonder if consolidation will eventually be necessary just to get the dollars to a place where groups can have more of an impact. If you've got a dozen groups with small dollars versus is that better than having one, two, three groups with a lot of money to spend? I don't know the answer to that. I think we might get to the point where that becomes a bigger question. But at least for now, as long as these groups start pulling the same direction and collaborating and sharing ideas and resources, I think there could be a significant shift in success rates. Sometimes when you're looking at a part of the economy that has a lot of overlaps like that, there also are still remaining gaps 
Do you see anything that's missing in the pro-democracy movement that people ought to be tackling that they aren't? Nothing jumps out at me. I, I, I really think that there's a group out there for anything that you can think can be a solution. You know, if you are in favor of term limits for Congress, there's a group called U.S. Term Limits that works on nothing but that. There's a group that feels that Congress is too transparent at times. There's multiple groups that work on ranked choice voting. There's a group that works on approval voting. There's multiple groups that work on redistricting. There's many, many groups that work on ending polarization. There's groups that work on bringing politicians on left and right together to talk about common ground. Money and politics. There's a group for pretty much everything. Yeah. Yeah. It's like Congress. There's a caucus for everything in Congress. There's a group for everything in political reform. If you were going to have a chance to start the fulcrum again from scratch, do you think there's a way to build it that it would have had a sort of a growth trajectory? Or do you think that was just not possible in the niche? I think it's possible. I think it, it takes a different mindset to how you approach reporting and, and writing on what's going on. I think if you take a more activist approach to it, it can be more successful than what we did. I think about something like the bulwark, which comes with a a political point of view. It's it's conservatives who are anti-Trump. So they have a political position that they're advocating. But there's others like that that are there's and groups about the environment. And, and by the way, Fulcrum and Bulwark are like somehow linguistically super similar words, confusingly to me a little bit, even though I know they mean something totally different. Well, <laughs> the funny story is the Fulcrum wasn't our original name. Our original name was even more linguistically similar to the Bulwark. We changed it not because of that. What was but the original? Because one? it felt what's it was the firewall, and it. But I think we had that before the Bulwark came out. But it was rightly pointed out to us by one of our founders that it was too defensive. We wanted to be more aggressive about democracy and not trying to keep it from getting worse, but thinking far about change and not defending. And that's where I think the approach could be different next time around is being more aggressive in how we write about these things rather than everything needs to be a news story. Less of that, more of this, this is why this is important and this is the way it can be done and taking a, a more activist approach. Would that have been more fun for you or more aligned with where you come from or were you more comfortable with the long history as a reporter sort of writing yeah, news? I would say the way we did it was more comfortable and a better aligned with where I was at the time. Four years in, I think I've learned enough that I would want to do it in this other way. As someone covering the democracy, a lot of times when you do, it's almost like it's a friend of yours that's under assault. You get kind of pissed off that people are after it, like Trump appears to have been and certainly took some significant anti-democratic actions, especially on January 6th. Does that make you mad? Like what's been happening? What's your emotions around the last bunch of years? It runs the gamut. I mean, January 6th made me scared, made me angry, fearful for the country. I mean, the fact that a mob of people <laughs> invaded the Capitol <laughs> was, it's astounding to think back on it now. Like, now, like, I laugh talking about it, but 
I can't believe that that's what happened in our country, regardless of your political position. I can't believe that that's people find it acceptable. They think they're patriots. Right. You know, that's the irony of, of, uh, you know, of every battle that we have, the Confederates thought they were patriots. Right. But then you see things like Republicans in Virginia, where I live, use ranked choice voting in their nominating convention for governor. And like, see, like, these aren't partisan issues. Both parties can find ways to use these things to their advantage. The way politics seems to work is people make a calculation about whether a change will benefit them politically rather than philosophically, you know, and then they they align one way or the other in most cases. That's exactly right. And and the fact that these things can be shown to work for everybody gives me hope that we can find ways to embrace it on a larger scale. Is there a question I should have asked you about this whole course of your career and the bulwark and what you're up to that I haven't? The thing we didn't talk about was some of the opportunities I've had to see things in action or in person pre-pandemic when there were still, you know, conferences and conventions and now things like that are coming back again. I've been to events where you see people who are so passionate about these issues. It's a relief to see how excited people are for political reform. And again, not because they want their side to win, although there's plenty of that, but there are people who generally believe the system can be made to work better. And, you know, a few years ago, I went to Nashville for a conference put on by a group called Represent Us. And there were thousands of people who came to the city to talk about democracy reform, seeing them in and out of speaker events or walking up and down the corridors to stop at tables and see what different groups were doing. It was so great just to see people that excited about it. Yeah, it's inspiring. Uh, yeah, I really do appreciate, David, you taking the time. It's been quite interesting. Is there anything else you want to say? No, I'm, I'm good. I appreciate the opportunity to be on with you. That was David Myers. He's at David Myers on Twitter. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. The Great Battlefield is now part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about other podcasts that cover democracy and civic engagement. You can also help me by leaving comments and good ratings on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere and by sending me suggestions for great guests to nperlman at gmail.com.